Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Daf Differently. I'm Rabbi Adina Lewittis, and today we're studying Tractate Shabbat, page 123. On Daf 123, the discussion about the laws of Muktzah, of those things we are forbidden to touch or move or use on Shabbat, returns to the Mishnah on 122, that listed which utensils may be taken to do specific permitted actions on Shabbat. A hammer to crack open nuts, a hatchet to cut a cake of pressed figs, etc., As we will see, this page of Talmud offers us two powerful insights into how Jewish law evolved and into the circumstances under which traditions continued to grow and change. Rav Yehuda and Rabbah disagree over whether the Mishnah meant we can take only utensils that were created specifically for permitted Shabbat actions, like a hammer made specifically for cracking nuts, or whether we can take utensils made for other non-permitted actions on Shabbat and use them for permitted actions, like using a blacksmith's hammer to open nuts. Rav Yehuda rules that something ordinarily used for work that would be prohibited on Shabbat may not be used even for work that is permitted on Shabbat. Rabbah rules the opposite. Something ordinarily used for work that would be prohibited on Shabbat may be used for work that is permitted on Shabbat. In the section that follows, various positions are discussed and challenged. Fascinating reference is made to a position of the house of Hillel, Beit Hillel, which allowed for the use of a pestle on Yom Tov to chop meat on, whereas Beit Shammai forbade using it. Beit Hillel agreed that after the meat was chopped upon it, the pestle, which was normally used for grinding, could not be moved or used for any other purpose. What's fascinating, though, is that the reason Beit Hillel permitted this normally forbidden utensil to be used on the festival day was in order to enable people to enhance their enjoyment of the holiday meal by chopping their meat upon it. Here we have an example of a religious authority allowing something that is normally prohibited simply because it will deepen people's appreciation of the festival, the spiritual experience. This incidental comment is a remarkable statement about the priorities considered by Beit Hillel when deciding how to rule on a given halachic question. While there may be ample objective reason to prohibit a certain action, if it deepens someone's religious consciousness and connection to community, there's reason, according to some authorities, to permit it. What often divides post-scheme, those who decide Jewish law, is the relative weight they place on following the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. When deliberating, some authorities appeal to what they call the meta-halachic values of the tradition, the ultimate goals of our observances, in order to make sure that our practice is not just conformed to, but inspire Jewish commitment. Some modern-day halachic discussions that invoke this dynamic include the question of driving to synagogue on Shabbat, the enfranchisement of gay and lesbian Jews, and the question of patrilineal descent. After more analysis of different utensils and their permissibility on Shabbat, the first page of our daf concludes with a rather bizarre debate between Rav Nachman and Rav Sheshet over whether one can straighten out the limbs of an infant that became dislocated during birth. The debate hinges on whether you regard repairing the baby's body as analogous to repairing a utensil, which would make it prohibited on Shabbat, and on whether straightening out limbs itself is to be considered an act of repair in the same sense as healing something with non-critical medicines is considered an act of repair. The case is one in which no life-threatening or serious health issues pertain, for if the life of the child were at risk, 
Of course, all would agree that the limbs could be straightened out. The second half of the duff opens with two Mishnahs, the second of which offers a striking illustration of the evolutionary character of Jewish law. Rabbi Yosef Omer, kol hakelim nitelim. All utensils may be taken on Shabbat, except for a large saw and a coulter, which is the large blade on a plow that cuts through the earth to make furrows. The later rabbis of the Gemara open their commentary by listing which other tools are to be included under the category of those that Rabbi Yossi forbade moving or using on Shabbat. Then the Gemara discusses the origins of the Mishnah's rule. Tanu Rabbanan, the rabbis taught in Abraita, originally they said that only three utensils may be taken on Shabbat, a knife for cutting a cake of pressed figs, a ladle for skimming foam off a pot, and a small table knife. Later, they permitted more utensils, and then again and again, they permitted more and more utensils until they finally said, all utensils may be taken on Shabbat, except for a large saw and a coulter. What's going on here? As the Talmud explains further down the page, in the days of Nehemiah, the beginning of the Second Commonwealth, when the Jews had returned to Israel from Babylonia, there was a pervasive laxity in Shabbat observance within the Jewish community. As it says in the book of Nehemiah, during those days I saw people in Judah pressing wine vats on Shabbat and bringing their heaps in from the fields on Shabbat. Clearly, people were working on their day of rest. In order to reinforce the observance of Shabbat, the rabbis enacted decrees that restricted people's activities on that day, such as the decree not to touch or move any utensils. If they couldn't touch their utensils, it was unlikely they'd be tempted to work with them. Thereby, the sanctity of Shabbat and the prohibition of working on Shabbat were restored. The ones that were excluded from the initial comprehensive decree, the knife, the ladle, and the table knife, were excluded because they were used so frequently and were central to people's food life, which was not restricted on Shabbat except in the area of cooking. Similarly, the decree never applied to such things as cups and bowls and plates that are used in labors permitted on Shabbat, namely those related to food consumption. As Shabbat observance increased, so the rabbis relaxed the prohibitions. They did this three times, and then on the fourth, they lifted all restrictions on moving these utensils, except for the large saw and the coulter and the other items that were deemed similar to those. The Gemara explains the process of easing the restrictions as follows. According to Abaye, first they permitted taking utensils whose purpose was for work permitted on Shabbat, even if it was being used for a different permitted labor. Then they permitted taking something designed for permitted labor and moving it simply to use the space it was occupying. Then they permitted taking utensil that was designed for prohibited labor, provided it was used for permitted labor like using a blacksmith's hammer to crack nuts. Then they permitted all utensils except for the large saw and the coulter. Rava offers another history. First, they permitted moving things either to use them or simply to use the space they were occupying. Then they permitted moving something even if you didn't need to use it or its space, but simply to get it out of the sun and into the shade to prevent damage. Then they permitted moving utensils for prohibited work to use it for a permitted action or for its space, but not for the shade, for protection. Then they permitted all utensils to be taken except for the two mentioned in the Mishnah. Regardless of the different stories of the process of easing the restrictions, what's clear is that as the community grew in its observance, the laws gradually grew in their accommodation and openness. Halakha neither exists nor evolves in a vacuum. It's not a system of law that's independent of the people whose lives it's intended to shape and guide. Realities on the ground help shape the halakha itself. Sometimes that takes the form of increasing strictures, as we see here. And sometimes it takes the form of increasing leniencies, as we also see here. And in, for example, the modern case of authorities who permit the cushering of plastic kitchenware that became mixed up or sullied, if throwing them out and buying new ones presents a financial hardship for a family. 
It's interesting to consider how different halachic communities have responded to the shifting patterns of observance in the 21st century. Some have become increasingly strict in response to the decreasing levels of ritual uh, commitment or religious practice amongst Jews, while some have become more flexible in order to be experienced as more relevant and meaningful in our times. While the Jewish community has always been heterogeneous and diverse when it comes to religious practice, what has clearly changed in the last few hundred years, especially since the Enlightenment, is people's relationship to rabbinic authority. Obedience to rabbinic dictates has waned considerably in the Jewish community, outside, of course, from the Orthodox world, which is the smallest of the different Jewish communities. Dictates, like the ones issued by the ancient rabbis here regarding Shabbat observance, would not have the same resonance today amongst the majority of Jews in the world. What impact ought that have on Jewish law? Should it retrench and become ever more narrow in the face of apparent rejection by the majority? Or should it take a different tack and try to offer a framework for Jewish living that speaks to the realities of people's lives, values, and priorities today? When it comes to Shabbat law, it's hard not to be reminded of the famous words of Echad Ha'am, a secular cultural Zionist who cared deeply about creating not only a state for the Jews, but a Jewish state. He said, more than the Jews have kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jews. What he meant by that was that the day of Shabbat, of retreating from the world of commerce and work and exerting control over their own time, enabled the Jews to invest in community and faith and enrich themselves as a people and a tradition. To the ancient rabbis, that could be accomplished only by the reinforcement of the legal boundaries of the day. Could the same connection to and embrace of Shabbat in our own times be accomplished by a redefinition of those boundaries, and perhaps even a loosening of some of them? I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.